We started last week, we were discussing different questions, different variations of a question about if a misfortune befalls someone, or is about to befall someone, and he has the option to, he has the option to evade the misfortune for himself, but at the cost of the misfortune befalling someone else, typical case is the enemy has a quota, and if it's not you, they'll have to take somebody else in your place, is that allowed? And we explained, or I should have explained, not sure how clear it was, that everyone agrees that to actively hand someone else over, to actively get someone else in trouble, is a problem. Your, your blood is not redder than his blood, so you certainly can't actively cause the misfortune to fall, to fall on somebody else. The question we were discussing was, if, it, if you're simply going to act to avoid the misfortune, to get it off you, nothing to do with getting it on anybody else, but you know, as an indirect consequence, that'll mean that they'll then go take somebody else in your stead, is that mutter or raster? So we said this was a, a classic version of this question occurred during the Holocaust, but these questions occurred more than once, obviously, during the Holocaust, although these questions began much earlier. So last week we discussed a tshuva of Rabbi Yosef Ibn Leib about a government uh, tax or burden of some kind where they would assess onerous obligations upon people, and people wanted to know if they could pay somebody off to, to, get, to get themselves exempt at the cost of someone else taking in their stead. And we discussed Rav Shmuel Landau, the son of Noah Yehuda, who discussed a similar situation with military service in the 19th century, where the, the government wanted a certain number of people, and if you use influence or money to evade service or to, or to, to have someone that you care about uh, avoid the service, it would fall on somebody else instead, the basic rule that we, that we saw was that before they've decided who they want, where they just know they have a quota but they haven't yet picked names, you'd be allowed to say, here's some money or you owe me a favor or something, please make sure it's not me, that's okay. But after they've named names, after they've picked who they want, you're, it, it's not so simple, you may not be allowed to say, don't take me or don't take my friend or don't take someone I care about, if you know that that means that they'll take somebody else instead. Once they've already selected you, you're not allowed to, or, or once you've selected someone, you're not allowed to push the misfortune off that person if you know that that means it'll instead uh, rebound onto somebody else. We mentioned, Ibn Leif said, that if you're not sure it'll, it'll happen to anybody else, if they, if they might not take anybody else, then, then you can. Then a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. Get, get the problem off the person today. We don't know what'll happen in the future, but if it's pretty clear that by rolling the misfortune off someone it'll land on someone else instead, then, uh, then, it is, then the postkin said it was us. Now, I've just been conflating the question of whether you're saving yourself or saving somebody else. There is an opinion, we'll discuss that in more detail tonight, that distinguishes between saving yourself and saving somebody else. That saving yourself, a person's always allowed to put himself first, but if he's neutral, he shouldn't, uh, he shouldn't save someone at the expense of someone else. We'll discuss that distinction a little bit later. But anyway, that was the background. That's what we covered last week. That's what we covered last week, the discussion about the, 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 the first couple of tshuvas, the tshuvas of the, the Rabbi Yosef Ibn Leiv and Rabbi Shmuel Landau. Tonight we'll discuss two more tshuvas on this topic. One is the Chassam Sofer, who would have been roughly a contemporary of Rabbi Shmuel Landau. He was writing in 1830, also discussing European military service, the question of what the Jews should do when the government had a kind of collective draft. They demanded a number of people. They didn't particularly care who, but they, but they said, you must give us X number of people. So what's allowed, what's not allowed in terms of manipulating the outcome? 
And then we'll discuss a pair of stories told by Rabbi Tzvi Hirsch Meisels. Rabbi Meisels was a Holocaust survivor. He was a Rav in Auschwitz, and he, he wrote a sefer called Mekad Hashem, discussing various halachas related to the Holocaust, and he has a couple of uh, incredible, incredibly moving stories that occurred during the Holocaust, that, that, which involve uh, this question as well. I know it's, uh, it's already, it's already uh, Yom HaZikaron, Yom HaTzmoet, but I started this last week already, and this, to, it, 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 this is too interesting a topic to finish with just one share. So I'm going to have to, uh, we're going to continue tonight, and we'll, we'll see what we get to next week. So the Chesem Sofer's Tshuva is a very interesting Tshuva. All these Tshuvas are very interesting. The Chesem Sofer's Tshuva is quite interesting. His question was, Am Yisrael Jews are being drafted to the, to, to the army. So, like Rev Landau, he writes that it's a very difficult topic to discuss. It's very hard to discuss this. Gidoli Israel simply ignore it and turn a blind eye to what's going on. He doesn't really explain what he means, why. If people are doing wrong, isn't it the job of Gidoli Israel to object and to, uh, to correct their flock? I don't really understand what he means, why he felt that Rabbanim couldn't say anything. Was it fear? Was it, uh, did they feel they would make things worse somehow by speaking up? I don't really understand what he means, but he says, let people do what they want, let the leaders do what they want. It's Lafia's uh, man, the exigencies of the time, the ace lachshos. Sometimes discretion is the better part of valor. I've never really understood this attitude. I guess I'm naive, I'm young, I'm, I'm, I don't have a position of great power and authority. It's easy for me to say, you know, let everyone else uh, fall on their swords and uh, take magnificent stands. I, I, I'm not the one who's paying for it. So. I, I once actually had a discussion with a uh, distinguished rabbinic leader who I liked very much and I respected very much, and he was complaining to me bitterly about a, a, some phenomenon or other, some social phenomenon which he greatly disapproved. So I said, so why don't you say something about it? Why don't you protest? Why, why don't you object and make your displeasure known? He says, I can't. If I would say that, you know, I, I would get attacked and I would, I would lose all respect. I said, but that's the job of a leader. What's the point of being a leader if, 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 you, if you can't take stances and tell people what you think? So he looked at me with kind of, uh, kind of uh, pity and said, you know, you don't understand, you're young, you, you, you think you can fight the world like that, it doesn't always work like that. So yeah, I mean, you know, both sides are obviously true. Obviously there's no point in being a leader if you're not going to act, actually exercise leadership, at least sometimes. But you do have to pick your battles. Sometimes, sometimes you need to say something and sometimes you don't. It would seem that this issue of... Uh, of the, the people in power taking advantage of their power to uh, send the poor kids to the army, you'd think that would be uh, one of the issues that's actually worth taking a stand about. So it's hard to know what the Chassam Sofer meant, why he felt that he wasn't going to speak up. But anyway, he, he is going to make, despite this disclaimer, as we'll see, he is going to make a pretty full-throated, as Rabbi Lando did, he is going to make a, a pretty full-throated denunciation of the people in power taking advantage to, uh, to shift the burden onto the less powerful. So he writes, He says, This basic law, this law, this draft, that, that they have to levy this assessment, this draft, onto the, his whole nation, the entire population of the country, they all have, that everyone has to provide equally, equitably, people, doesn't say equally, but they all have to provide soldiers for his army. That's his right, he says. That, that he, that's his prerogative. Draft for military service is a legitimate sovereign prerogative. And the government is entitled to demand, to demand that we submit to a draft. Step one. Step two, he says, because the government's demand is legitimate, it's a, legi- it's a legitimate sovereign prerogative, 
Therefore, we are obligated to obey, to comply. Anyone who is eligible for the draft, which at that time meant he's suitable, he's, I guess, physically in a physically good condition, and he's not married and doesn't have children, as, to, as, as, as it is today, they, they obviously prefer people whose loss won't be, uh, doesn't have dependents, either because they fight better or because they don't want to leave the, a widow and children without, uh, without, with, with, without a husband and father to take care of them. But whatever it is, the, the law was that anyone who's able-bodied and unencumbered by wife and children is subject to the draft, as per the law. All people who fit these criteria must submit to the draft. Except, he says, the one exception is Bachurim Lom De Torah, Yeshiva students who are learning Torah are not, uh, are not um, eligible for the draft. Because first of all, he says, according to the Torah, they're potter. We've discussed this in the past. In other contexts, the Gemara Baba Basra says that in certain cases, in certain contexts, Hachamim are not subject to drafts. There are, there are some complicated rules here. We're not going to get into the details. It's, uh, this comes up in Israel as well. The question of Yeshiva students, taxation, draft, and so on. It's a uh, large and controversial topic. We're not going to get into it tonight. But the Chassam Sofer says that yeshiva students would be exempt from the draft, and the Malchus also says they're exempt. In this case, the, the Malchus's rules, the government's rules were, were aligned with halacha. They, they also agreed that yeshiva students were not subject to the draft, he says. So we had this in the United States as well. In Vietnam, we had uh, rules that, that yeshiva students, at least in some contexts, were exempt from the draft. There was talk of abuse of it. But the point is, in his time as well, the, the law was actually congruent with, uh, with the halacha. The yeshiva students were not subject. But other than yeshiva students, he says, everyone, including religious Jews, are all, are all, are all eligible for this draft. They, they're all obligated to comply. He says, Kamafahamim, he says, many times I have given an attest, some kind of, uh, some kind of uh, he, he had to attest, he had to issue some kind of affidavit that the people in Bohemia and Marin that he, had, he, he certified certain people were Lom de Torah, and they were indeed legally exempt from the... Uh, and, and they'll be, not just the learning Torah, but they'll be, they'll be successful to be rabbinic leaders, to, to Linhog Tzibur, and they were indeed exempt. And so aside from them, he says, Educh, everyone else, everyone who's not a yeshiva student, it is, ideally, he says, they should all present themselves, Meharoi sheyamdu atmam kulo b'shava, the only fair way to do this, the government needs X number of people, we have no way to choose. Everyone would like to, to would like to be would like it to be somebody else. What are we going to do? The only fair way is a lottery. He says, you know, "How would we resolve this? I don't know. First come, first serve. You'll know, find it out. So whoever pays more, have some kind of board that would decide who's uh, least valuable to society." I guess we can all think of various suggestions. But the Chassam Sofer says what I think intuitively we would probably also fail is uh, is the fairest. That's I think how our draft used to work a lot with lotteries and so on. That the fairest thing is, he says, that everyone who is, who, is, who is eligible, non-exempt from the draft, according to Torah law and European law, everyone presents themselves, and they, they do a goro, and whoever the goro lands on, so he is now has to serve in the army. Now, he himself can obviously try to get out of it, he says. He can do whatever he can, legally. He can pay money to, uh, to buy his way out of the draft. Again, we, we, we don't work like that today, but apparently in some... Uh, in, in, in earlier times, that was sometimes the law. I think even in the United States, I think even in the Civil War, people could pay, I think, uh, people could pay a certain sum of money to the government and they would be exempt from the draft. There was a lot of controversy, I think, about that. The poor people 
not unreasonably thought that was very unfair that the rich could buy their way out of the draft and they couldn't afford it. But that was, that was the, the norm at that time. So they could either pay money if the government allowed that, I assume he means, oh, or they could hire surrogates. That was also a common practice. We had that in the Civil War as well. We had that, and the common practice used to be that if you were drafted, you would be able to, the, the, you would be able to find surrogates to do it. And if you find a surrogate, that's okay. But the point is, it's your responsibility. You have to go and serve un, unless you can find some, uh, some means of, uh, of, uh, of, of avoiding the obligation. Or go yourself, he says. If, if, if a person wants to get out of service but can't afford it and other Jews can help him, by some means they, they're obligated to help him because it's important to, to have a Jew not serve in the army. Is, uh, the army was pretty grim for a Jew back then. They, 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 they didn't have religious accommodation. The Yekar Pidyanaf shows, but he, it is his responsibility unless he can get out of it or people can help him, but ultimately it's his responsibility. Avalanus and Ashim but to force certain people, the powerless, the poor, to force them without a girl and to say, you should go, we're going to make you go, even if, we discussed this last week as well, even if they're pochazim verekim, even if they're low and uh, considered worthless by, the, by, the, by their betters in society, even if they're rishayim, even if they're megale arayas, mechale shabbos, but even if they're rishayim, they, they do serious averis, someone who turns such people over to the government without a fair girl, that is, like, that is like the capital offense of kidnapping. Ten Commandments, Los Ignov, Chazal, and the Talmud tell us that kidnapping is one of the worst crimes. It's a capital offense. And so turning somebody over without due process, without a goral, he says, is, uh, is, 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 is egregious. It's kidnapping, he says. It's utter villainy. He says, who, who told you? Who told you that, that, that you're better than him? Last week we saw Rishmo Orlando discussed a similar thing. He discussed that there were some uh, kids at risk. There were some uh, wild and uh, wild and uh, fringe type youth. <coughs> he said you can't turn them over because we don't have Adim that they did serious averis, and even if they did, you know, minor averis, it's not that they're not complete Rishayim yet. But the implication we said was that that he seemed to suggest that if they were documented Rishayim. If they were people who actually did serious averis, like Chil Shabbos, maybe you could turn them over. Chasim Sofer says, no, even if they are Megali Arayas, even if they commit you know, serious sexual transgressions, incest or adultery, Shabbos, and even if they're Mechal Shabbos, which is one of the worst sins a Jew can do, nevertheless, they, in, 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 ter- in this context, in the eyes of the, of the law here, they are equal to the, their betters in society, they are equal to those who are more highly regarded in society, since the chiyuv of the malchus, since the draft does not discriminate, the draft the draft falls on everyone equally, regardless of his spiritual and social stature. Hamosro kemosro If you give such a person over, you have the status of a moser, which of course is a terrible term of opprobrium in Torah and halacha. And mesir is a terrible thing. And uh, in a way, it's even worse. He says because the people who are drafted and have to serve in the army, when they do averis, they're mechal shabbos, they, they do whatever they have to do. They only do what they're forced to do, and uh, it's not their fault. They're renownists. But these people don't care. These people are not keeping Torah anyway, so they're going to do it willingly, he says. And where Madchem Achor and Nofel, you can't do that. So the Chassam Sofer says, regardless of how, uh, of how poorly behaved and how you know, little regarded these people are in our religious society, but in the eyes of the law and in the eyes of the halacha in this context, they are equal. We have absolutely no right to say, you bear the burden of military service. We are all equal. We all have to submit to the Goral equally. That is the Chassam Sofer's ruling. However, he says, one solution is, one concession he makes is, 
He goes back to the question of surrogates, he says. There are many people, hundreds of people, he says, who will happily sell themselves into military service for money, for cold hard cash, willingly. So he says, even though these people are terrible, because from a religious perspective, it's a terrible thing to do, because by volunteering for the army, it's a terrible, terrible thing for a Jew. They have to be Mechal Shabbos, they have to eat non-kosher food. So for a Jew to offer himself for the army, from a religious perspective, from a civil perspective, that's fine. But from a religious perspective, that's a terrible thing to do, because there's no religious accommodation, so he's committing himself to do, do serious averis. However, he says, once these are the facts on the ground, once there are such surrogates who are putting themselves up for sale, therefore, we are allowed to hire them, if we can afford it, to avoid serving ourselves. Normally, we, you know, we don't say, let somebody else do an Averis, so you shouldn't do it. But he, he shouldn't do Averis either. But the Chassam Sofer says, they're going to do it anyway. If you don't hire them, somebody else will hire them. They'll, there's a market for surrogates, so they're not going to go, uh, somebody will pay them. Therefore, he says, he's doing the Averis anyway, so you might, as well, you might as well hire him so you can get off, so you won't have to do Averis in the army. Kalkalasam is Takonaksas, the fact that we have these surrogates, even though their mere existence is a terrible thing, they shouldn't be doing it, but once they are doing it, we can hire them, so we shouldn't have to do the Averis and, and pay by army service ourselves. It's, he, he admits it's, uh, it's a bad business. That's what we do in our, in our, in our area, he says. It's choosing the least of two evils, hiring these people, even though they're, they're doing terrible Averis, but they're doing it anyway. We might as well hire them, so we shouldn't have to serve. Once again, he says, uh, once again, he says, I've written very briefly, because obviously, understandably, I can't write at length about this, he says, but Hashem should, should help us all. It's interesting, the Chassam Sofer's own Talmud, the Maram Ash, has a tshuva we've discussed in this year in the past. He actually said volunteering for the army was mutter. He seemed to think it was mutter, he said, because, for a Jew to volunteer for the army. Because what are you worried about? You have to Michal Shabbos, he says? Well, whatever they make you do, you're an onus. So there's nothing wrong with that. If they don't make you do it, then don't do it. He doesn't seem to have any notion of a gray area, an in-between area, where they won't kill you for not doing it, but they'll make your life unpleasant, or they'll, they'll hit you, or they'll... Uh, They'll, they'll humiliate you and cut your rations. He seems to assume it's all black and white. Either they absolutely make you, in which case you're an onus, you have no choice, they'll shoot you, or, you know, and, 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 and then uh, you're absolutely an onus, so it's much, or they won't, or they won't, then you won't do it. Makes it almost sound like the, like the American army, where, where they'll make all kinds of religious accommodations for you if they can. Uh, it's hard to imagine that was the Matthias in the European armies. <coughs> and that's why the Chassam Sofer says that those who volunteer for the European armies are doing terrible affairs. We discussed this in the past. There are other posts in like the Maram Ash who say that it was mutter to volunteer for your, a European army because whatever Averis you would do would be only when you have no choice and then you're an onus. Chassam Sofer himself thinks it's a terrible Avera. But on our topic, the, the Chassam Sofer's position is in line with the earlier Chuvas, more or less. He says, you are certainly not allowed to turn anybody over. He says, you are allowed to evade service yourself if you can, if legally, presumably. He doesn't explain what would happen. He doesn't really discuss the question of what would happen if you would know that that would immediately trigger taking somebody else. He doesn't really discuss that. He just says that you yourself can evade the service if you have the means to do so, but you have no right to, to, you have no right to give over somebody else in, in, in your stead without permission. If he wants to, if, if he's a willing surrogate, if you can pay him and he'll do it, then Kolakavod, he says, but to actually turn somebody over, even if he's a Russia, even if he's a Michal Shabbos, and someone who engages in sexual transgressions, even if people who do that, in this context, they are equal before the law as you, and you have absolutely no right to turn them over. 
he doesn't really engage, as I said, he doesn't really engage with the question of whether you would have the right to get yourself off if you know that would mean that they would forcibly draft somebody else. That was the question we discussed last week, and that was the question that we're going to discuss again now in the Chuvas of Rabbi Tzvi Hirsch Meisels from the Holocaust. Tzvi Hirsch Meisels was a, was a Hungarian Rav. He was... He was a rav. Uh, he was a rav in the. He, he was in Auschwitz during the war. He was. He was. Uh, he survived the war. He made. He made it eventually to the U.S. to Chicago. He was born in about nineteen. He was born in nineteen oh one in Tufresh Shemach Beis, and he uh, and he at that that was late nineteen oh one, and he and, and he was uh, nifter in Tufshin Lamedalad in seventy four. He was a Rav originally in Galicia and Hungary. He was in the camps, survived Auschwitz, made it to Chicago, and he was originally a, ra- a, ra- a rabbi in the transit camps. He then served in the transit camps, eventually made it, made it to Chicago, was a Rav in Chicago, passed away in 1974. He wrote a sefer called Mekadshe Hashem, where he discuss- and along with other Sfarim, which he discusses various questions that arose in the Holocaust. And one question he discusses, he discusses this more as an anecdote than as, a, uh, as, a, as an episode, than as an actual tshuva lahalacha, but it, it's one of the most moving, one of the most hair-raising, and one of the most fascinating halachic discussions that I've ever seen. He writes this, again, in the introduction, in an essay to the, to the Sefer, he writes as follows, In Auschwitz, he says, I was approached by a Jewish man, he seemed to be a simple Jew, Yehudi Pashut me Oberland, from Oberland, from the Hungarian, from the, that, that region of Hungary, and uh, and um, he said, he said that he had, uh, he said he had a question to ask me. He wanted to he wanted to discuss something with me. So he says he says Rebbe, the man approached me and said Rebbe, my Ben Yachid, my only son, was dearer to me than my than my eyes. He says he is in a group of young men who have been designated for Sreifa for the crematoria. And he says, I have the ability to redeem him. Money, presumably, something. He has the ability to get his son out of this selection, out of this group of, of, of young men that are going to be burnt. So he says, but I know, I, I have no doubt, he says, that the capos who are in charge of this uh, horrific business will, will take somebody else. If, if I get my son off, that they need to make their quotas, They'll see somebody else. So he says, I'm asking you, Rebbe, paskin am I allowed to do this to redeem my son? And whatever you paskin, that's what I will do. Says Rabbi Meisels, when I heard this question, I was seized by, by trembling, by uh, trepidation, to paskin liter- literally a matter of life and death. And I told him, I tried to avoid the question. I told him, Yididi, Akiri, how can I pass in halacha brura in such a shaila, in such a situation? He says, even when the base makes their stood, when Jews, when, when we're in a far better situation, a shaila like this, a single rav like me couldn't pass in, we'd have to go to the Sanhedrin, the, the, the national court of 71 judges. And here he says, in Auschwitz, he says, I have no sefer, I have no halachic svarim, I have no other abanim to consult, he says. I have no yishuv hadas, I have no peace of mind to, to properly consider such a question, he says, all the terrible things going on. How can you possibly ask me, he says, to, uh, to how can I possibly answer such a question? Now, Michael's notes, as an aside, he says, he makes a curious uh, legalistic distinction, he says, 
if the capos would first release the person that they were paid to release, and only then would they then go and try to make, the, make their quota up, then there would be some basis for leniency, he says. Because, similar to what we saw in Ibn Lev last week, the logic is, you get your kid off today. You get him out now. Now, now what's going to happen afterwards, he says? What are the capos going to do? Who knows what they'll do, he says. It's certainly austere for them to take somebody else. They, they, they're certainly not allowed to, 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 to send Jews to the crematoria, he says. Maybe, they'll be, maybe they're, they're pintily in. Maybe their internal spark of Jewish uh, uprightness will take over. They'll say, I can't do this. I won't take another Jew. Who knows what they'll do, he said. So if, the, if what's going to happen is that they'll, 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 they'll release your son to you today, and afterwards you know, they'll probably take somebody else, but who knows, maybe they won't, maybe they'll see the light, then he says there would be, similar to Ibn Leib, there'd be some basis for leniency on the grounds that take your, get your son out today, and who knows what will happen uh, tomorrow. Then, then there'd be some makom to be lenient, he says. However, he says, but to my great sorrow, he says, I was aware that that was not the case. The kapos don't do that. They will not release somebody until they first have someone else in his stead. Because they know that if, they, that if, they're, if they're missing someone, if, if, they, if they, heaven forfend, come up short in their quotas, then the SS, who are, who are their uh, overlords, will make them pay for it with their lives. So they will not risk the chance of being caught shorthanded, so they will not release anybody unless they first have his replacement secure in their custody. So therefore, he says, since there is no chance at all that, 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 that your son will be released and nobody will be taken in his stead, they're not even going to release your son until they take somebody else, he says. Then... I really had no heter, he says, so I was not willing to issue him a lenient ruling. So I refused to answer Rishayel. He says, I couldn't think of a heter, so I told him, I tried to, uh, I tried to punt, I tried to say, I can't paskin in Auschwitz with no Svarim, no, no rabbinic colleagues, no Yishuv Adas, I can't paskin. However, he says, the man did not give up so easily. He says, the man came to me with uh, tremendous weeping, he says, and he begged me, and he says, Rebbe, that you have to paskin, he says. That, that's, that, that's, uh, that's a, it's a burning question. It's my only son. I have to know what to do, he says. I have the, the windows closing. I have a limited amount of time to know what to do. Tell me what to do. Save him or don't save him. What should I do with my son? So I begged him. I said, I also, I begged him. I said, please, don't make me paskin. He says, leave me alone. I said, I can't tell you. I can't paskin the Shiloh. He says, without Svarim, how can I possibly paskin such a Shiloh? And in, in Auschwitz, he says. And he kept telling me, he says, uh, he told me, Rebbe, he records the conversation in Yiddish, he says, he says, Hastas, if you cannot permit, if you will not permit me to, to redeem my only child, then no, then the answer is no. Then I accept upon myself your Psakdin that I have to allow my son to die. So I very much tried to avoid, he says, or Maisel said, I tried very much to, to avoid taking responsibility for this ruling, this uh, default ruling. And I told him, no, he said, I, just, I didn't say that, he says. I, I didn't tell you it's mutter, but I also didn't tell you it's usher, he says. What I want you to do is pretend you never asked me the question, he says. Ich paskenisht, lohein v'lolav, I'm not ruling, neither yes nor no. He says, do, he says, do, he says, do, you should do, he says, whatever you would have done had you not asked me the question. Just do whatever you do on your own, uh, on, on, your, on your own initiative. I'm not paskening, just leave me out of it, he, I, I told him. And he said, no. He said, I want an answer, he says. He says, uh, he says, I want an answer. I want you to tell me yes or no. You're the rabbi. I demand an answer. So finally he says, the, finally he says, the person told him, finally he says, the, the person wouldn't let go, the person insisted on an answer, and he says, Rebbe, Ichab them that does mine give us the Torah is mich machayev I have done what the Torah obligates me to do. I asked the Rav. 
I asked the Shaila, he says, by a rav, and there's no other rav here. When Kain Andra rav is Danish da. There's no other rav for me to ask. I did everything the Torah could possibly want me to do. If you can't answer me, he says, if you can't answer me clearly, definitively, that I can redeem my son, that's a simon, he says, that it's, uh, it's not a clear hatter, he says. If it would be a clear hatter, you would certainly tell me. Then, of course, you would tell me I should do what he says, if it would be a clear hatter. So it must be, the Yid says, that, uh, that, that, that that's a psaktin. A default is also a psaktin. If you, if you can tell me yes, then by default you're telling me no, he says. You're, you're, that's what you're telling me, and that's what I'm going to do. And he says, uh, if I can't, I'll be alacha, then I'm not going to do it, he says. And then my, my, my only child will be burned in the crematoria, he says. But that's what the Torah says. That's the alacha. What can I do? I'm a kabbal ba'ava. If I can't redeem him, I won't redeem him. And, that, and that's what you're telling me to do, and that's what I'm going to do. I begged him, I said, to release me from any responsibility. He was, you can't blame him. I mean, you can't, can't blame a rav for not wanting to take responsibility for this, obviously. But uh, I begged him, I told him over and over again. But he kept telling me, he says, that he cried, but he said he kept telling me that this is all I can do. He says, I'm asking a shaila. If you can't tell me it's mutter, I have to conclude it's usher, and I will, not, uh, I will not lift a hand to redeem my son. It was Rosh Hashanah, he says. So all day, he went, this father went around saying, he, he, he expressed great joy, he says. He was able to offer his son, his only son, to Hashem, like the Akedah of, of Avram and Yitzchak. He says even though he could have redeemed his son, he had the power to do it, and he didn't. Why? Because he saw the Torah didn't allow it. That uh, he, he could have done it, he wanted to do it, he didn't do it, even without a definitive psaq, simply because he inferred for Rabbi Meisel's refusal to answer him that the answer was no. So he told God, please consider the, the sacrifice of my son, like the Akedah of Yitzchak Avinu that was also on Rosh Hashanah. In terms of the actual halacha in this case, so in the footnotes to this, to this uh, story, he brings some of the literature we discussed last week, that indeed we saw the poskim said, the, the Mari ben Leif, Rabbi Shmuel Landau, that once the misfortune, once somebody has been named and selected for misfortune, you're not allowed to redeem him if it'll mean definitively, absolutely, certainly, that someone else will be taken instead. So that's it. that was why he wouldn't be matir. But he writes an interesting question, which I alluded to before. He writes, in Stapakti, he says, maybe a father is allowed to redeem his son. Ibn Leif was talking about somebody wanted to redeem a friend or someone he had some reason for wanting to save. But he was basically a third, per- a third party. We mentioned the case of Mephibosheth and David. David loved Mephibosheth. He, 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 felt, he, he felt close to him on behalf of his father, Yehonah's son. So he wants, but again, that was David trying to pray for Mephibosheth to save him from the doom of the Givonim who wanted seven, seven lives of the family of Shul. But a person himself, the Torah sometimes grants greater latitude for a person to save himself. And he brings this fire from one of the Achronim, the Sefer Yad Avram, uh, Rabbi Avram Maskele'eson, his name was, on Yerodea, that, that he actually proposes that he himself is allowed to, is allowed to redeem himself, it's hard to understand how that could be, because one of, the, one of the precedents for all this is the Yushalmi we mentioned last week that says if a person sees a flood heading toward his field, so before the flood has actually landed on his field, he's allowed to redirect it, even though it means it'll end up in someone else's field. But after it's on his field, he's not allowed to uh, send it out of his field if it means it'll go to someone else's field. So the Yushalmi seems to be saying that even your own, uh, even your own, you can't even save yourself if that'll mean someone else will suffer instead of you. But okay. But he proposes that a person is allowed to save himself and maybe even allowed to save his son. We, we, we can clear, he says, Yeshla Stapek, it's a Suffolk, whether a person's son is considered like him or not. So that's a Shaila. So, 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 so there would be some basis for possible leniency, 
But the simple answer is, as, uh, as, heart, as heart-rending as it is, the simple answer is that the person did the right thing. As, as terrible, as unthinkable as it is, a person would not be allowed to save even his own son if that would absolutely, certainly mean that someone else would be killed in his stead. He then brings, or Meisels then brings a similar story, he says, Uvda Badomilo, also in Auschwitz, he says, I guess, he says there, were, there was another selection made where a bunch of young men were selected to be killed. And he says, in this case, the Germans were apparently killing children who were not, who were not useful, I guess, who had no economic use, but they were leaving the older, older, the, the, the older boys, the, the young men, they were leaving alive. They could work, I guess. They didn't have birth certificates, but the way they were determining uh, who was going to live and who was going to die, they had a, a wooden board. Anyone whose head didn't reach the, the top of the board, didn't reach the board, would be considered uh, too young and would be killed. This is like a, a ghastly, unspeakable version of the amusement park signs where they say, you must be this tall to go on this ride. Well, you must be this tall if you want to live. If you're not this tall, then you, you, you get sent off to the crematoria. So, and this was, of course, a very crude metric. There was somebody who was, uh, some, some kids were, were young, were young but tall. Some kids were older but shorter. So there was a certain person, a Talmud of Meisels, a young man, barely 20, wasn't even 20, who was, who was quite short. And therefore, this, this uh, he says, this, um, this uh, his, his Talmud, this, this, this boy named Moshe Rosenberg, almost 20 years old, but was very short, was selected to be killed along with the, along with the young people. So he says that... He says that there was another boy, another, another, another boy who apparently was, uh, apparently was not going to be, was not going to be killed, who was apparently a little bit taller, he was a young boy, only 15 or so, but was apparently tall enough, was not going to be killed, and uh, it, was, it was a son of a friend of his, Ray Meisels, and he, and he said uh, with great anguish, the, the second boy, Akiva, he said to the, he said to Ray Meisels, Rebbe, What's going to happen to Maishala? Maishala, his friend, I guess. Maishala, the, the, the budding Talmud Chacham, was going to be killed. What's going to happen to Maishala? So I told him, you know, what's going to happen to him? You know as well as I do what's going to happen to him. What can I do, he says. Yeah, how can we save him? The, the, this is, this is uh, inexorable. What, 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 what's supposed to happen here? He's, he's going to die. He said again, the, 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 this, this boy Akiva said, Rebbe, how can it be? Maishala is going to get burned and we're going to sit here and do nothing. How can it be? So I told him, what are you suggesting? Are you, are you proposing something? You know, what are we supposed to do? It, it's terrible, but you know, what, what can we do? He said, yeah, I do have a suggestion, he says. I have some cash. I have some cash, he says, and I can, uh, I, I can, I can pay them off to, to, get, to get our friend Maishala to get him uh, saved from, the, from, the, from death. So I told him, but you know, you surely understand that if you redeem Maishala, that means I'll take somebody else because they have an inviolable quota. So, so in the first in the first case, in the case of the father, he was unwilling to say point blank he can't do it. Here, he was a little more explicit about it. He said, "You know, that's a problem." He says that uh, they have to have their quota. Doesn't say for sure it's us here, but he says, "Mi who, Who's going to take responsibility for playing God for saving one person as, as worthy and as promising a young Torah scholar as he might be at the expense of another, another, another person, another young person? So, who's going who's to do that? He says, "How can I allow you to do this?" If it means someone else will die in place of our friend, our student, my student. So he says, I have an Eitzah for that too. I have a solution for that, he says. I asked him, what are you talking about? What kind of Eitzah can you have? The, 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 this is how the system works, where, where uh, 
We're fishing a barrel here, he said. What do you mean you have an Eitzah? These are facts. If you, if you pay to get, to get Meishelah redeemed, they're going to kill somebody else. So the, so, the, so, the, so the other boy, Akiva, he excitedly said, I have an Eitzah. My Eitzah is, I'll, I'll give myself in. I'll pay them to let my, this is like, uh, the, this is like the climax of A Tale of Two Cities, but this happened in real life. I'll pay to, I'll pay to get him out, and I'll go in his stead. I'll accept a Simcha Rabbah, I'll be a carbon, I'll be a carbon, he said. I'll go, we'll get him off. No, no unwilling person will be taken in his stead. Everyone will be happy. I'll be happy too. I'm, I'm happy to save his life. I'm happy to spend money to, 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 so he can live. I'm happy to give myself uh, to death so my, so my friend can live. So let's do this. So when I heard this, Rabbi Meisel said, I yelled at him, and I said, that I will certainly not allow. He says, you're going to commit suicide. You're going to, you know, Sidney, uh, Sidney Cart- Carton might, might have said it is a far, far better thing I do than I have ever done, but al Alacha, you're not allowed to do that generally. You're not allowed to give up your life for somebody else, even if you think the other person is more deserving or better somehow or uh, worthy of being saved. You're not allowed to do that. Rabbi Meisel said, you may not do that. Absolutely not. You may not... Uh, kill yourself, give up your own life to save your friend, and it's a halacha psuka, chayacha kodman, that your life comes first, not only is that a privilege, that's a, that's a duty, the Torah demands of you, you have no right to give up your life. So Ramaisal said, there's nothing we can do to, to, to get him off, that means that another Jew will be killed in his stead, we can't take responsibility for doing that, for you to submit yourself, to essentially commit suicide, to give yourself over for your friend, that we can't do either, and that was the, and that was, uh, so, so he left for a moment. Then he says, after several moments, he came back. And originally he just gave up, but then he came back. He said, he said, Rebbe, I can't, uh, I, I can't find any peace, he says. Meshala, should be burned, and I, the little me, unworthy me, he says, I'm, I'm nothing compared to him. I should live, he says, I'm going to do it anyway, he says. Uh, even if you're not telling me it's mutter, he says, uh, I'm going to do it, even if you won't tell me it's mutter. As long as you can promise me I won't be considered a Russia as a suicide and I'll lose my chalik and all of haba. As long as you can assure me that I'm not going to be in uh, eternal, uh, eternal damnation, he says, uh, I'm, I'm willing to do it, even if you won't tell me it's mutter. I yelled at him again, Ramaisel says, and I told him, I can't promise you that, he says, because you're not allowed to do this. And, uh, and, uh, he, he says, uh, he says, if, if you don't have to do it, you're not. You're, then I'm not sure you're allowed to do it. He says, so, 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 so how can I endorse? How can I uh, condone what you're doing? He says, you shouldn't be doing this. And he told me, he says, but uh, there's a big difference. He says between me and Meishla. Meishla is a, a Talmud Chacham. He's a Masmid. The, he'll, he'll still. He, he has great promise. Great things will happen. He says, not me. I'm, uh, I'm ignorant. He says, I'm, I'm worthless. He says. And everything, I've lost everything. I've lost my family, my parents, my brothers, my sisters. They were all taken to the left, to death, he says, to be burned in the crematoria. I'm the only one left. I have nothing left in this world anyway, he says. And why am I better than them? They're, they're all dead. Why should I live, he says. What's my life worth, he says. If I can at least do one, uh, one last good thing in my life, at least I can do this. I can save, I can save Maishala, this, 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 this boy of great promise, this, uh, that, that, uh, that you know, why shouldn't I be happy to do this? He says, uh, let, let me do this. Th- then he gets into, uh, in the footnotes again, he has a whole discussion whether we do prize uh, some lives over others, whether a Talmud Chacham is, 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 is privileged over ordinary people. But, uh, but, but he says, Al-Bialach, he says, you can debate it. 
he brings some literature on this, whether indeed, in terms of, we had these kind of questions when, when, we had, when, they, when they had COVID, when they had limited vaccines. There were questions about what the, all the tiers and categories, whether how halacha would look at this, who, uh, you know, who, who gets precedence, do, do we try to look at people who are more worthy, do, worthy to, more useful to society, more worthy uh, inherently, do we, do we not, do we say all lives are equal? He discusses that a little bit in the footnotes, but then he winds up the story, he says, I, 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 I was just, uh, I, I realized uh, my, my heart was about to burst, he says, to hear, uh, to hear such things. However, he says, I, w- I, I would not condone this. As a matter of Isser uh, Beheter, I would not agree with this. If he wanted my imprimatur, I would not give it. I yelled at him again, and I, uh, I, I, I insisted that he not do this. And after much uh, pleading and begging, he, he conceded and he gave up, greatly depressed, and he agreed not to throw away his life to save Maishala's life. These, these were the kind of stories that uh, happened in the Holocaust. They obviously happened in other times in Jewish history. Um, may, may it be Hashem's will that we be saved from such Shever uh, Vanach in the future, and may we merit, uh, may we merit the redemption of the Meher of